Well, it's good to be on the other side of the country and come and join you in Gloucestershire. As Roger says, I come from Suffolk, which is very flat. And yesterday it was great walking in some of your hillsides. You certainly live in a beautiful part of the country. I'm going to start this morning with a question. Have you been converted? And you say to me, that's a very personal and intrusive question to ask as a visitor. But you know, that word was often in popular vogue when the gas man came round and said, have you been converted to North Sea gas? And it's very much in vogue today. I'm a rugby enthusiast. I used to play rugby for Bury St. Edmunds. And of course, the word is used every time the ball is kicked through the post. A try is converted. And if you're a builder, you will have used that word in converting maybe an old barn into a house. And when you go overseas, you change your currency. You convert it into a new country. So it's not just with a religious connotation that we think of that word, conversion. It's a word that's used very much across the culture today. But when you come to the Bible, the word conversion, in the language in which the Bible was written, it means literally to turn or to change. It means to have a change of mind that leads to a change of heart, that leads to a whole new change of direction in life. It means changing from going my way to going God's way. It means changing from living to please myself to living to please God and to serve others. And it means changing from what I know to be wrong and seeking God's help to always do what I know to be right. And you know, when some people are converted, it is a very powerful and emotional experience. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, said he was so full of joy, he wanted to tell the cows in the field. He felt the whole world needed to hear about this liberating experience that he had had through coming to know God through faith in Jesus. Charles Spurgeon, the great London preacher, when he was converted, he said he danced all the way home. He was so lifted up with joy. And Blaise Pascal, the well-known French philosopher, he said, time stood still for two whole hours while I was lost in wonder and ecstasy. And then there was Billy Bray, the Cornish miner. He was a drunkard. And his conversion was very powerful too. They couldn't stop him talking. He said, I remember this. Everything looked new to me. The fields, the cattle, the trees. I was like a new man in a new world. And they couldn't shut him up. And he said, even if you put me in a beer barrel and roll me down the hill, I'll still shout hallelujah through the bunghole. He was so full of joy in the newfound faith that he had in Jesus. So for some people, it's a powerful experience. And I was preaching in our local prison recently. And sometimes when those men come to faith, they shake and they cry, tough men, as God in his power and love breaks their hearts and they turn to faith in Jesus. But for others, it's quite a gentle experience. For people who fought against doubt and maybe fear, the final step can almost be an anticlimax, a sense of relief rather than a shout of joy. 
And it was like that for me when I became a Christian, having fought against it for some time because I was so involved in sporting activities. And yet one day, just like today, I was sitting in my seat and God broke down all the walls of rebellion and pride that I'd erected against him. And I just sat in my seat and said, sorry God for the way I've been living. I give my life to you. And there was no kind of flashing lights. There was no huge emotional experience, just a deep sense of settled peace that I'd given my life to God. He'd forgiven me, and I was now on my journey with him. And C.S. Lewis, the great Cambridge scholar, stated, I gave in, admitted that God was God. I was perhaps the most dejected convert in all of Christendom. And very often, people who are brought up in a Christian home It's just a very natural thing for children and teenagers growing up to put their trust in Jesus. A bit like a flower opening to the warm rays of the sun. They open their hearts naturally to Jesus and begin the Christian life. And so the real test as to whether a person has been converted is not to be judged so much by emotional upheavals, but whether there's been a different change in my lifestyle, rather than to wonderful feelings and events that might have surrounded my conversion. And so the question we need to ask is not whether supernatural things have happened around us, but whether a deep spiritual change has happened within us. And we know that Paul was converted on the Damascus Road, not because of the blinding light from heaven, not because of the voice of Jesus that he heard, but because of the radical change that came over him, so much so that Luke could record he started to preach the faith that he had tried to destroy. And people today still speak of Paul's experience as the Damascus Road experience. And some people who are a bit cynical towards the Christian faith will say, if you've become a Christian, have you gone and seen the light? But Paul's conversion is not a typical conversion. To be converted does not mean you have to be struck by divine lightning or fall to the ground in blindness or hear Jesus calling your name in an audible voice. But I believe every single one of us needs to do four things. We need to have our own personal encounter with Jesus. We need to make an unconditional surrender of our life to Jesus. We need to be baptized in his name and we need to go on and serve Jesus. And then people can say, this person has really been converted. And Paul's conversion in the first century is perhaps the most dramatic and famous of all. But from time to time you hear of other people who have startling stories to tell of how they came to faith in Jesus. I think of a man in Jerusalem called Mr. Namur of the National Union of Teachers in Jordan, but more commonly known as Colonel Nasser's first agent in Jordan. And he went regularly to Egypt to meet Colonel Nasser because Nasser saw him as a person of great potential and he trained him to be a terrorist and to stir up all sorts of problems in the old city in Jerusalem. He was a political agitator and in his lectures he was always stirring up students to create riots and to kill in Jerusalem. He was moving to a top political post when everything changed. 
he married a beautiful woman. And she gave him a lovely girl. She was the joy of his life. He lived for her. And then one day she suddenly died. He was so devastated, so heartbroken, that he had a massive heart attack. And he ended up in hospital in Jerusalem. But while he was there, a phrase kept going round in his head. And the phrase was, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Certainly his treasure had gone and his heart had followed her. And he'd remembered reading those words in the Bible earlier in his life. But during his life, he'd preached against Christians. He'd been hostile towards Christians. But now his little heart and his little treasure had died. When his wife visited him, she found him talking to somebody at the foot of his bed. She thought he'd become delirious when he said, Jesus has just spoken to me, and he has said, In three days, you will either be dead or you will be better. In those moments, he surrendered his life to Jesus. And three days later, he left hospital when he'd been told it would be three months. And he immediately began to preach about the Jesus he had tried to destroy. And quite a number of Arabs in Jerusalem became Christians. And there were at least 60 at one stage who were meeting in his home. Then he suddenly disappeared. It was assumed he'd been kidnapped. He was probably killed and he's never been heard of since. But it was another dramatic conversion. And so we're going to look this morning at the story of Saul's conversion. And many people think it was a sudden crisis on the Damascus Road. But I want to point out that I believe it was a process that led to a crisis. There was a phrase in the Bible reading this morning, you may have noticed it, where Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And by using that proverb, which was fairly common in Greek and Latin at the time, Jesus was likening Saul to a lively young bullock and himself as a farmer who kept prodding him. Because a goad, and you will still see them using them in the Arab areas in Palestine, a long stick with a spike on the end, and they would be prodding the ox uh, in the backside if it was stubborn and wouldn't move. And here Jesus is likening himself to somebody who is constantly stabbing away at Saul's conscience. But he is digging his heels in, and he is hardening his heart. And Jesus could see that although he was a man, and he was tough on the exterior, underneath He was a man with a troubled and a divided heart. His conscience was pricking him about a number of things. And Jesus, I think, could see that he was a walking civil war, fighting for his Jewish religion, and yet in his heart wondering if these Christians were right after all, treating Jesus as an imposter, yet wondering if after all he might have been the promised Messiah that the Jews had been looking forward for centuries. And so this angry young man that we meet in the beginning of the book of Acts is at war, really, with himself. He's going through an inner struggle. And then Jesus speaks to him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting against me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. 
So what were these goads that he kicked out against? Why did he feel so uneasy in his heart as he headed for Damascus? Well, I think there are at least three things. The first is the emptiness of religion that troubled him. He'd been brought up as a Pharisee. He knew what it was to keep the law of Moses. He was part of a group that were particularly devoted to the religion of the Pharisees. And yet inwardly, we know from his writings, he had no sense of peace. All his adherence to religious rites and ceremonies brought him no peace. And he had no real victory in his life. Again, we know that from his writings because he says things like, the good that I wanted to do, I didn't do. And the evil I didn't want to do, I found myself doing. And so there was this internal strife in his own heart. And as he journeyed, I believe, to Damascus, he found himself thinking, could those Christians really be onto something? He'd seen such joy and confidence in their faces, even when he arrested them. And they spoke about the peace of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, and the sense of purpose they had in life. And the gnawing emptiness he began to feel in his own heart was highlighted by the joyful exuberance of these Christians that he met. The emptiness of religion that troubled him. And you know, there's still a huge gulf between being religious and being a Christian. You can be christened, confirmed, baptized, go to church, read the Bible. You can go through all those kind of things and not be a true Christian. Because all the good things that we do can never cancel out the bad things that we have done. All the good works that we have done will never be good enough to bring us to God. Otherwise, there would have been no need for Jesus to come and die for each one of us. But you need to understand that there's a huge difference between being religious and being a Christian. Being religious talks about what you can do to try and gain favor with God. Becoming a Christian is all about discovering what God has done for you so that you can follow him. And so I ask this morning, have you become disaffected with religion? Because if so, turn to Jesus and you will suddenly come alive spiritually and know his joy and peace in your heart. Then secondly... Something else that stabbed his conscience was the ministry of Jesus that must have challenged him. With his conscious mind, he rejected Jesus as an imposter. Just another religious upstart who'd come down from Galilee, where most of them came from. And he realized that Jesus had been rejected by the chief priests, by the rabbis, and he'd been condemned on a cross. And yet in a way, he could never get Jesus out of his mind. And I think because they were contemporaries in age, he would have looked into the eyes of Jesus from time to time. He would have heard of some of Jesus' wonderful teachings that touched the hearts of ordinary people in particular. He must have wondered why the prostitutes and the sinners of the day gathered around Jesus because they found in him somebody who was so true and genuine. And then, of course, there were the miracles of Jesus, which were absolutely 
sensational. And then, of course, there was the death of Jesus. And that must have challenged him because the sun went dark, the earth shook, the rocks split, some graves opened and people walked into the city. And then there came the resurrection. And all of those things would be going through his mind as he traveled up to Damascus. What if Jesus was the Messiah? What if he did rise from the dead? Yet every time those questions surfaced, I believe he tried to silence them because again he was kicking out against the pricks. So in a sense, I think Saul got to a place in his life where he just felt Jesus was pursuing him and he couldn't get away from him. C.S. Lewis in his book, Surprised by Joy, in the last chapter of his autobiography, he sensed how God was constantly pursuing him and refusing to let him ignore him. And he likens God to a series of metaphors, to a great angler playing a fish, to a cat chasing a mouse, to a pack of hounds closing in on a fox, to a chess player maneuvering him into a position until he concedes checkmate just felt God all the time was pursuing him. I listened to one convert's testimony and he summed it up like this. I dodged, I fought, I ran, I hid, but he chased me, he caught me, he disarmed me, he eventually won me. His love and mercy triumphed. Such is the grace of God. We may say I've no time for God. But God will find a way of speaking to us again. We may decide to totally reject him. But God will come in under the radar into our hearts to speak to us again. Some of you will have heard of Malcolm Malcolm Muggeridge. He talks about his pre-conversion days. How he tried everything to do to run from Jesus and to reject him. And he often felt he'd escaped. But in his biography he talks about walking through a forest and seeing pieces of wood shaped like a cross. He talks about becoming angry. He did not want to be reminded of Christ and his cross. And so he wrote, However far and fast I'd run, still over my shoulders I'd get a glimpse of you on the horizon. And then I'd run faster and further, thinking triumphantly, Now I've escaped you. But no, there you were, coming after me again. Very well, I'll shut my eyes and my ears so I do not see you or hear you. No good. One sees and hears you, not with eyes and ears, but inwardly with the soul whose faculties can never quite be put out. Now I can flee no further. I fall and cry for mercy. Isn't God wonderful? We write him off, we reject him, we say we have no time for him, but still, in his love and mercy, he pursues us, seeking to find us. And the final goad that I think pricked his conscience was the testimony of Stephen that haunted him. Stephen was thrown out by the religious authorities. He was taken outside the city and he was stoned to death. And if you know the story... Those who were doing the stoning, they laid their clothes at the feet of a young man called Saul. But Saul was there at the trial of Jesus, and he heard Stephen speak. And he spoke with such wisdom and grace that even the chief priests and the authorities couldn't stand up against him. 
He left an incredible impression, I think, on the mind of young Saul. And Saul was present too at his execution. He was outside the city walls. And I think he would never forget that Stephen's face was radiant like that of an angel. Everybody else was gnashing their teeth and they were full of anger. And there was this man at peace with himself and at peace with God. And it says his face was like an angel. And I can imagine Saul thinking, how dare he? How can he? It's outrageous. But it must have left a huge impression on him. And also he would never have forgotten what Stephen said as he was being stoned. Look, I see heaven opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What an incredible claim that the person who had been crucified and buried was now alive and in was a position of authority at the right hand of God. And then I don't think he would ever forget how Stephen prayed as his body was being bruised and battered by rocks and stones. He heard him pray, Lord, don't lay this sin to their account. A parallel prayer when Jesus prayed for that murderous multitude from the cross when he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And before Stephen died, he prayed again, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Even as Jesus had prayed, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And Saul couldn't possibly miss the similarity between the death of Jesus and the death of Stephen. How could anybody pray for their executioners with their dying breath? It was unthinkable. He couldn't miss the point that the spirit of Jesus was now living in Stephen. And so I believe that the conversion of Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus Road was the climax of a drawn-out process in which Jesus was constantly challenging this rebellious man about his life. And finally, the stubborn ox was broken in. He fell in submission and gave his life unreservedly to Jesus. So I asked this morning, have you been frustrated with the emptiness of religion? Has the very thought of it put you off totally? Have you been ever impressed by the ministry of Jesus? Have you ever looked at it thoughtfully? I constantly give away copies of Mark's gospel and say to people, don't write this off until you've read it. And I get people to read through Mark's gospel because it will tell you who Jesus is. It'll tell you what he can do in your life. It'll tell you how you can change and become a new and better person. Don't write Jesus off. And have you ever been impressed, like Saul was, by the life of another Christian? It's amazing how many people come to faith in Jesus by seeing something of his life in another person. Maybe somebody in your family has become a Christian. And you found that challenging because you've seen some changes in them. And this was what was happening to Saul of Tarsus as he looked at the disciples of Jesus. Or are you one of those people who's still kicking against the goads, still resisting the Holy Spirit when he calls you and touches your conscience? I think in closing, one of our biggest problems 
in becoming true and committed Christians is pride. I think Paul must have often thought, what will my colleagues in the rabbinical schools think if I tell them I'm going to become a follower of Jesus? He would imagine the scorn, the unbelief, the outrage that one of their most promising pupils and hostile opponents to this new movement could even think of doing such a thing. And pride is a barrier we all have to break through. We tend to think if I become a Christian, my reputation will be tarnished. I think of a bank manager in my own town that I sat and talked with at length because his wife had become a Christian. And he was like Saul of Tarsus, kicking against it, resisting it all the way. And at one point he looked at me and he said, Victor, you know me well. You tell me what you think is wrong with me, why I can't make it in being a Christian. And I felt God wanted me to say to him, I don't think you've got the courage it takes. And he looked down for a moment and he said, why did you say that? I said, I felt God prompted me to say that. He said, you're absolutely right. I could never conceive of myself going back into the bank and facing my staff and admitting I'd become a Christian. And there's a verse in the Bible which says, the fear of man brings a snare. And some of us get trapped right here. Fear of other people's reactions. But how would we feel on the day of judgment when we stand before God to say I was so fearful of what other people thought? If I took this step, we would find that that excuse would be a very weak excuse indeed. So Saul of Tarsus was converted. He was baptized. And he went on to serve Jesus in the church. And he became one of the greatest missionaries the world has ever known. There's a verse in the Bible which says, unless you are converted or changed and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. That's a very important verse. We have to become like little children. And children are beautiful because they trust implicitly when they are young. And then as they grow older, their minds closed and they become suspicious. And Jesus says, if you're going to be converted and come into my family, you need to trust me implicitly. And so today is another day when I simply say, have you been converted? Have you responded to the call of Jesus upon your life? Have you discovered real, deep, lasting peace? If not, today is a day when you can do just that. Speak to me afterwards. I'd love to pray with you or speak to somebody else that you know could help you. God bless you and thank you for listening. Thank you very much. Let us pray together.